The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I'm not sure whether or not you knew this, so let me go ahead and fill you in as we get started. It is entirely possible for a church like ours to proclaim the deepest and the truest doctrines of the Christian faith, to lay out clear plans and visions for what could be, and yet undermine it all with the culture that we cultivate in our lives together. Did you know that? It's entirely possible for a church like ours to have the best gospel doctrine, the clearest picture of what could be, and to absolutely undermine both, cut both off at the knees by a less than gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded culture amongst God's people. And let me add to that this. The same thing is true with our homes to piggyback on Ray's living church. You can talk all the religion you want in your home. You can craft the most enviable family vision. All your friends and neighbors can think that's the greatest thing in the world and yet cut them both off at the knees with the culture that you cultivate in your home. If If what we mean for our friends and our families to experience and what they do experience in our homes aren't the same. We stand to lose everyone. It's one thing entirely to cultivate children that are adept at compliance. Like Ray said, it's an entirely different thing to cultivate children that obey out of a sincere desire and true heart. This is why personally I am so excited to have Jim and Lynn Jackson from Connected Families come and talk to us that Friday and Saturday night about the gospel. That's what they're coming to talk about. They're not coming to present a parenting methodology. They're coming to talk about the gospel. And in particular, the gospel lived out in the context of our homes. The reality of it is you can take what we're going to talk about Friday and Saturday night and apply it to every other relationship in your life. It's not just about parents and their kids. Their understanding, their explanation, their encouragement in the gospel was like a fresh drink of water to my wife and I at a very difficult time in our life, in our home with one of our children. And I'm so excited at the opportunity this church has to be able to bring them in Friday and Saturday night. I will tell you this, unless you are a doctor on call or your, or your boss has you in the office or someone in your family is gravely ill, you don't have a more pressing obligation that Friday and Saturday morning. I promise you that. Unless you think your kids are beyond the understanding of the gospel in the home they're gonna be talking about, you're wrong. Parents, you've raised, some of you have raised children, you've sent them out into the world. You're the ones the majority of our families in this church are going to come to for wisdom. Please, I implore you, don't write this off. Come join us Friday and Saturday morning. 
come learn with us what we're learning about the gospel in the context of the home so that together we're all encouraging other, each other in the same way. For any of you who think that we're doing this for, for any kind of ill gain, I promise you, we make no money from this thing. The registration covers childcare. That's it. We are doing this for your joy. And we're doing it that the manifold wisdom of God's glory might be made known in and through our homes. Because as we saw last week, in our lives together as the church, not just the smaller microcosm of that in our own homes, but in our lives together as the church, nothing less is at stake. Nothing less than the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel is at stake in the lives of the family of God together. This is what God has intended for all of eternity to be the primary strategy for displaying to a watching world and powers and principalities the wisdom of the gospel. This is the recalibration work we began to do last week when we considered what the value of the church is in particular to God. We saw in Ephesians chapter 3, as we read through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we kind of crescendoed where Paul said in chapter 3 verse 10 that it was through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to God's eternal purpose realized in Jesus, that the church has a cosmic intention, a cosmic and eternal value and purpose in the plans of God. And so last week we began the work of asking God to recalibrate our understanding of how he sees the church. And we talk more specifically about what it means for our lives together the gospel-built, grace-driven unity of God's people to be used by God to put on a display of his wisdom. We saw specifically in John 13, where Jesus said, a new command I give to you, talking to his disciples, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Another, as we enjoy the grace of God given to us in Christ, we are to give that same love, that same grace, that same enjoyment to one another. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're mine if you love one another. It's this relationship of God's people together that God has intended to be the apologetic, the display, the argument for his gospel to a watching world. That's why Jesus prayed, we saw last week in John 17, when he prayed for the disciples and he prayed for the church, he said, may they be brought to complete unity. Why? That the world would know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How, how does Jesus pray towards the end of the world, the watching world, know, come to know that God loves them the way that God the Father loves Christ the Son? It's through the way that we love each other unbelievable God intends for the people and the places where he has us to know something of his love for them through our love with one another now here's the thing that sounds very hallmarky to me if I'm honest love is a very ambiguous word we throw it around in a lot of different ways well there's a very specific very tangible reality to this that God intends for a watching world to see in the lives of his people, 
that puts on display the manifold wisdom of the gospel to a watching world that they might know something of his love for them. And I know of few other places in the Bible where such a tangible expression of this love is condensed in so many different facets than Romans chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 12. And let me say this, if you're here this morning and you're, and you're wondering in a sense of what the value of this Jesus you've heard about has on people's lives, or maybe what the value in a sense, you're still wondering, what, what is the real value of this, of this church, of the church in people's lives? Let me just say, you have every right and every invitation by God, according to his word, to pull back the curtain on our lives together. Examine how we live. Our lives are meant to be lived in such a way that something of God's wisdom in saving us by his grace and changing us is to be put on display to you. And so this morning, as we read the verses in Romans chapter 12 that I want us to go through, for those of you that are here wondering what the, what the value of this Jesus is, you're still wondering what the value of this church is, I, I want to help you understand what to look for. Rather than being caught up simply on the important statements of faith, they're, they're super important, this is what we believe. And rather than being caught up in all the different things that we do, those should flow out of what we believe. I want you to pay attention to the culture that exists, the culture that is cultivated amongst God's people according to what they believe. In church, I want you to pay attention to these verses this morning as well and pray that what Paul lays out here in Romans chapter 12 be the thing that we most desire for our lives together. Use what he says as a litmus test for your own relationships together. So Romans chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 9. And the first thing that Paul says, and, and it kind of is an umbrella for everything else he's going to say. In some sense, everything he's going to say in the verses that we're going to do this morning, and, and I'll just tell you this, we're going to have another week because I couldn't get through everything at 8.30. So I already know we're going to have another week. So but everything that Paul is going to say in these verses is really explaining in greater detail to some degree what he's saying in the beginning here in verse 9. The first, and you could say most important thing that Paul says ought to mark the culture of a gospel-enjoying people that you should look for, for those of you that are wondering the, the value and the reality of this thing called the church, you should look for a people who have an honest love amongst each other. That's what Paul means when he says our love is to be genuine. Literally, he says, our love is to be without hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is, right? Saying one thing is true about you while something else is entirely true about you. In Paul's day and age, the idea of hypocrisy was, was uh, characterized by the actor's mask. It's putting on a mask, playing a different role, being a different part. Paul says that the love amongst God's people born out of the gospel is meant to be a love together that is genuine. It's a love that doesn't wear the mask. It's the love that doesn't play a role. There's a genuineness to it. Here in verse 9, when he talks about this genuine love, Paul uses one of four Greek words used in the Bible for love. And the word he uses here is one you might be familiar with. It's the word agape. 
Agape carries with it the idea of a very selfless love. But in the Roman world of Paul's day, it was a word that was not used very often because the idea of selflessness, of self-giving, of self-sacrificing, that was seen in that culture as weak. What was valued then was self-promotion and self-protection, very similar to the world we live in today. And so it was a a paradigm-shifting experience in Paul's day for people in that culture to see a community of people loving each other at tremendous cost to themselves. In some sense, their time wasn't their own. Their energy wasn't their own. Their resources weren't their own. And to some degree, you could say even their emotions weren't their own. Because they saw They saw in their brothers and sisters one that was to be loved in a selfless way. So they didn't hold anything back. But in a day and an age in which we live in a culture so intoxicated with the idea of self-promotion and self-protection, to see something like that, to see a genuineness to see a self-giving love amongst a people, it does something that our words alone simply can't do. But on the other hand, what would a hypocritical love look like? A love is supposed to be without hypocrisy if our self-giving love towards each other is supposed to be done genuinely and without hypocrisy, what does it look like to actually love each other in this way, in a hypocritical way? To wear the mask. Well, the ways that that can happen are endless. In fact, John Calvin, thinking about this very thing, he says, it's difficult to express how ingenuous almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they don't really possess. Calvin says the ways that people can come up with to love one another with a love they don't really possess to make it look like they do, it's more than we could actually count. A hypocritical love like this is love that's done for ulterior motives. Maybe to be seen a certain way, to gain favor in a certain situation. It's not a uniquely 21st century problem. That's why Paul had to mention it here. But I want to say this because as we go through the rest of these verses, we're going to better see what a genuine love looks like and a hypocritical love. But I want you to understand the idea of genuineness, of our life together without hypocrisy. It is the big idea that carries over everything that Paul is saying. All that he's saying is really unpacking this verse. Our Christianity and our lives together, Paul wants us to understand, can't be for a show. If our Christianity is for a show, it's to be seen a certain way by other people, it's a mask that we put onto our lives, that is a killer. Killer. Not just to the display of God's wisdom to a watching world, it's a killer to any real genuine relationship amongst each other. You want to understand why some relationships amongst God's people are hard? A prime reason is because one or both are wearing a mask. See, the reality of it is when we allow ourselves to wear this mask and our Christianity becomes a role that we actually begin to play, we're trying to hide something of ourselves from each other, some flaw we're ashamed of, some secret sin we're holding on to. When we're trying to hide something like that from each other, do you know what happens? 
When we talk about what this genuine love looks like in the rest of these verses, what's going to happen is you and I in our hearts are going to be unable to receive that kind of love from each other. Do you know why? Because you'll never really know if who that person loves is the mask or the real you. So there can never be any genuine unity or relationship amongst you. This is why Paul says it it has to be a love that's genuine, a relationship that's genuine. There has to be a life together without this mask. Because if the mask comes on, and if our Christianity is lived out together with this mask, the manifold wisdom of God's grace to us in Christ that rescued us and saved us, all of our sins being laid on him and paid for, that we might know whose we are and who we are and live in the beauty of his grace to us. It's cut off at the knees and there's never really any real connection amongst us. Our love together, look, 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 look for a people whose lives together are displaying something of the genuineness of the gospel, growing in this genuineness together. So I love, I love Emmanuel Church in Nashville. One of my heroes is the pastor there, Ray Ortland. They have a mantra for their church that kind of captures this whole idea that really hangs literally like a banner over the whole church. They have little cards you can take at the church and go out with you. It's called the Emmanuel mantra. Do you know what it is? It's three things. I'm a complete idiot, but my future is incredibly bright and anyone can get in on this. Laugh now, but think about it. Let that saturate a community and a people born out of the gospel, really believing those three things. Friends, look for a place where the love amongst God's people is genuine. It's displaying a growth in genuineness. And here's what you'll find. Paul says, you will find a people whose love for one another is a love that's willing to risk rejection. Genuine love, love without hypocrisy, is a love that's willing to risk rejection. This is what Paul's talking about when he says that you and I together. Remember, these aren't just commands written by Paul to the church for one person, for you to read in isolation and not understand it in the context of community. These are plural commands. There's a y'all here. Y'all, Paul says, are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Friends, this is one thing that, one way that genuine love is displayed. Genuine love looks like a deep hatred for all that is evil and would seek to destroy the life of someone you love. Abhor is not a word you use every day in conversation anymore, is it? Abhor carries this idea of of passion, of, of energy, of fire. You and I, as God's people in life together, we are meant to abhor anything that seeks to destroy the joy and delight in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. Love for one another that's without hypocrisy is a love that won't settle for watching sin ruin someone's life. You want to know what hypocritical, disingenuous love is? It's a love that is so weak on the inside, so timid on the inside, that it's willing to watch sin ruin the life of a brother or sister in Christ rather than risking the status quo of that relationship for their joy and God's glory. That's what hypocritical love looks like. That's what love wears the mask looks like. 
That's what love that puts on the gospel or Christianity as a show or as a role looks like. But genuine love, love without the mask, is a love that's willing to risk the status quo of a relationship because you know what? It might get rocky. It might not go well. But there is a gospel born abhorring of all that seeks to destroy the heart and life of someone you love. How little do I actually have to love my kids to let them run around my house with a loaded gun and not step in in any way possible and get that thing from them? I mean, how little do I actually have to love them? Oh, come to the parenting conference. Here's what we're going to learn. This is the vision for our family. Here, it's all crafted out. Da, 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 da. But my kids run around my house with a loaded gun, and I'm like, eh, natural consequences. I'm not willing for them to get mad at me. I'm not willing for them to be upset at daddy for taking away what it is they want, for pointing out how dangerous it is what they're doing, what the consequences of what they're doing are, for not doing anything and everything possible to step in. How little do I have to love them? Friends, that's what disingenuous love amongst God's people looks like. No, I abhor anything that would kill them. And there's an intensity and an emotion about that. So together, there is meant to be in us as God's people. This passion, this fire, to not let sin destroy one another's hearts and lives. Rather, Paul says, we cling to we hold fast to. Literally, we stay glued together to that which is good. Daily, we're seeking to encourage one another and what we see and enjoy about Jesus and the grace of the gospel. Daily, Paul says later, that we're to spur one another on to love and good works. The writer of Hebrews says we're not to forsake being together. Why? Lest the deceitfulness of sin harden our hearts. No, together. We stay glued to that which is good and right and true and beautiful in the gospel. Genuine love for one another born out of the gospel is a love that's willing to risk the status quo with each other. Willing to risk saying, I love you. I'm worried about you. The Bible describes a life like the one I see you living and it's going a different way. And here's the thing, that's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but it's worth it. That's what genuine love looks like. It doesn't wear the mask. But it's not just that. Paul goes on, genuine love. It, 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 there's another way that you can see it. So if you're looking for a culture, and I'm encouraging you to look for a particular culture, to want a particular culture, look for one that has a love that isn't snobbish amongst each other. That's what Paul is essentially saying when he says that we're to love one another with a brotherly affection. See, what's important that we miss here in the English language, and we don't always just jump around to original languages or whatever, but there's something missed here. Paul switches the word he uses for love here in this verse. In verse nine, he uses agape, self-sacrificing, selfless. Here he uses a different word for love. There's four used in the Greek New Testament. This is a different one. This is the word storge. It's a different word. It has a different meaning. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he, he describes storge as a non-discriminating love. 
To paraphrase Lewis, he says, Storge exists between people who if they had not found themselves in the same household, they wouldn't have anything to do with each other. It's a deep sense of connection with people who are just given to you. There's a a love and affection and a connection that's born between two people because of the gospel that's born in a community of people brought together by the gospel that apart from Jesus would have nothing to do with each other, that wouldn't choose to be in community with each other. But in this one, the nationality doesn't matter, the bank account doesn't matter, the job doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. Those things aren't the basis for our mutual affection for each other. No, there's a storge kind of affection, a storge kind of love born out of a delight in the gospel. And it's best characterized, Paul says, by a sense of brotherly affection. Paul is actually talking about an emotion here. He's talking in a sense about what genuine love is meant to feel like amongst God's people. Because of the reality of the gospel, you and I, we know, have been born anew and adopted by God into his family. Regardless of backgrounds, nationalities, occupations, educations, one writer says, even whether or not we are attracted to or like another believer, it's irrelevant Because in a community of people enjoying the grace of the gospel, there is a brotherly affection. You know what? You might, if you have siblings, there might be times in your life when you really wish you had a different sibling. They have done something so egregious in your mind that you just wish you had someone else in your house. But let someone else feel that way about them. Maybe you didn't have siblings. Maybe you played sports. You could argue for hours in a locker room. You could fight, you could wrestle. Let someone else touch a teammate. There is an affection, Paul says, that is cultivated in the hearts of God's people that has absolutely nothing to do with their background or anything in particular about them apart from their delight in Christ. And this brotherly affection is meant to be a mark of the genuineness of our love for each other. I was reading about this this week and I was trying to anticipate a bit of the objection. Given the prevalence of conversation these days about emotions and personalities and all of these different wirings and temperaments and what we're supposed to do and I came across this. Of course, John Piper speaks clearly to such things. He said, we read a command like love one another with brotherly affection and without even thinking, we excuse ourselves on the basis of the fact that we cannot at any particular moment produce by an act of will such tender affection. Therefore, we conclude that it can't be a real command. And we're not guilty if we don't have the affection because we're not really responsible for the spontaneous affections and emotions of our hearts. The truth is that God does have a right to command that we feel anything we ought to feel. If we ought to feel joy in the Lord, he can command rejoice in the Lord. If we ought to feel the sorrow of sympathy, he can command weep with those who weep. If we ought to feel gratitude for a great gift, he can command be thankful. The fact that our hearts are so distorted by sin that we don't feel what we ought to feel does not mean that God cannot command what is right and good and fitting for us to feel. 
He goes on to say, we're responsible to feel what God commands. So I plead with you, he said, be more serious when you read these commands than you might be if you thought that God had no right to tell you what you should feel about each other and that you have no accountability for your emotion. Paul is saying, you and I are meant to be marked by a particular affection for one another. But it's an affection that comes most naturally through the gospel. Because day in and day out, in our deepening enjoyment of Jesus, we are more and more reminded that we, by the grace of God, have been born again together into a new family. And our love for God as our Father is most clearly seen by our brotherly affection for each other. So look for a love that isn't snobbish amongst each other. And rather look for one that seeks to lift each other up at any and all given opportunities. Romans 12, chapter, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 is one that I really thought we'd spend the whole morning on. When Paul speaks to the church and he says, you and I are to outdo one another in showing honor. This is what genuine love really begins to look like amongst God's people. One translation says, in respect to honor, you and I are to lead the way for each other. A culture amongst God's people that reflects the genuineness of love for one another, born out of a delight in the gospel. A love that displays the wisdom of the gospel is a love that pushes its way to the front of the line, not to be honored by everyone else, but for the opportunity to give it to someone else. I have been wrestling with this verse for a while. That's why I thought about spending the whole morning on it. But the more I am aware of the, the permeability, so to speak, of my own heart and the porousness of my own heart and I'm aware of this intense cultural drive to make a name for yourself, to be honored by those around you, to, to look for honor yourself, this cultural drive to be somebody, to be known as somebody, to make a name for yourself. I'm aware of just how easily that seeps into my own heart. So it makes complete sense that it's easy for it to seep into the culture of the church. I mean, if I could sum up 90% of all the conversations I have in the office here with people in this church, regardless of, of maybe what the originating topic might be, at some point in the conversation, we're going to get down to this low-grade sense of lack of appreciation that's being felt somewhere in life in the heart. Everyone is walking around with it. Because the air that we breathe in the world in which we live is we've got to make ourselves somebody. And all of us are constantly feeling underappreciated somewhere. And the more fixated our minds become on ourselves, we simply don't have the space or the instinct to tangibly spot and appreciate and intentionally honor someone else. And here's the thing. It's not a 21st century problem. It's a sin problem. The weight of the language that Paul is using here in this verse is significant. Paul says, God's people, the church, we are meant, our reputation is to be one that goes before, that leads the way, 
that's demonstrating the path are pace setters in showing honor to others. Paul says this is what the church is to be known for, for going out of their way to honor and appreciate and affirm. In fact, you couple that with the beginning of verse 10. It's a pace-setting affirmation that honors the work of God in people's life without any favoritism at all. Because if we're really honest, you're already thinking, well, I do this here and I do this here. Most of the times you and I are quick to honor, appreciate, or affirm someone else or something else in someone is something very similar to ourselves. That's not what Paul's talking about here. We are, by the grace of God, meant to set the pace in honoring one another above ourselves. I mean, just imagine the the sense of belonging, the sense of connection, the sense of value amongst the community that seeks to set the pace in something like this, that seeks to outdo one another in honoring one another. I mean, for that to become a reality, it means our heart cannot be set. The default set of our heart cannot be seeking our own honor. We actually have to enjoy honoring and affirming others over our own selves being honored and affirmed. I mean, just think about it for a minute. In light of the honor shown to us by God, the incredible honor shown to us by God while we were utterly dishonoring to him. That in his love, he sent his son on our behalf, dying the death we deserve to die for our sin, rescuing us from Satan's sin and eternal death itself, having been so incomprehensibly honored by God. For you and I as his people to not set the pace in honoring others as we have been honored by him, it's the exact opposite of displaying the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel. It's actually putting on display for a watching world that we have yet to taste the depths of the grace that God has shown to us in his son. It's a diluting of the wisdom of God in the gospel. Sam Crabtree, he wrote a fascinating book called Practicing Affirmation. And in that book, he said that God-centered praise of those who are not God is optional. It's not optional. A fire not stoked goes out. A refrigerator unplugged rots the eggs. A garden not tended to erupts with weeds. Affirmation is the fire-stoking, refrigerator-electrifying, garden-tending side of relationships. Relationships in which commendable things are not commended but overlooked takes on its own distinct flavor. The relationship becomes marked And we take on that reputation to those around us. We're meant by the grace of God to set the pace in seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. Friends, what would your reputation in this be? What do you think the reputation of this church is with regards to that? I'll tell you it's not great. It's not great, partly because I'm not great at this. So it's natural that just like our homes take on the distinctive flavors and strengths and weaknesses of mom and dad at times, so does the church. 
I'm not great at this. God has been having to work on me at this, so it only goes to, to speak that we're not great at this. And I'll give you a tangible example, okay? Not to guilt, not to shame, just to be honest with you. I gave you an assignment last week, knowing what I was, where I was going. I asked you to pick up the phone or send an email or a text to Shelby, to Dee, to Ray, to Tim, to all of those who labored so hard this summer, preaching all summer, even when that wasn't their primary responsibility. Three people did it. Three. I'm guilty, not shaming, this is just a reality. We are meant to be known, to have the reputation amongst each other and, and outsiders who, who come into our midst of being people who set the pace at identifying the evidences of God's grace at work in people's lives and being quick to commend those things. Being quick to point those things out. To look for ways and opportunities to affirm what God is doing in people's lives because we can see it at work. And do you know how blind we are to our own, to God's work in our own lives sometimes? How necessary it is to have people quickly looking for, affirming, commending what God is doing. This is what we're supposed to be known for. But in that same book, Sam Crabtree had, had something else to say. And it's helpful in, in the picture of the genuineness of this love. He says, when we don't affirm the people around us enough, here's what happens. They eventually stop hearing our corrections. They eventually stop listening to us altogether and perhaps even become oppositional towards us. So if genuine love is a love that risks the status quo in a relationship because we're not going to be willing to let sin rob joy from one another's hearts, that we're going to bring those realities to each other, then genuine love also, like a plane, has to be equally balanced with the ongoing work of spotting the evidences of God's grace in people's lives and tangibly affirming those things, pointing them out, doing the work of saying something, paying more attention to what God is doing in people's lives rather than what we want people to see in our own lives. These things balance like a plane. Again, the same is true at home. Regardless of what we say, parents, if the culture our kids experience is one of constant, 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 correction, 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 without a greater level of affirmation and pointing out the realities of who see our kids to be and what we see happening in their lives and encouraging them what they're doing, you're going to get shut off. The genuineness of love that Paul is talking about here, born out of the gospel, yes, it's one that risks the status quo by being honest with one another about sin, but it's one that seeks to outdo one another and showing honor to each other. We can and we should praise people in God-centered ways, in ways that honor God. Why? Because if we look around the room and we see something commendable in one another, it's only right that we commend it because it's God who is at work in them, creating in them the desire to do that which is commendable and then giving them the power by his grace to actually do it. We're actually commending the work of God in them when we see the evidences of his grace and commend one another for it. Outdo one another. Set the pace for each other. Lead the way for one another and showing honor to each other. Friends, if I, if I could long for anything in Romans chapter 12 to be different in me, 
and by extension to us. I long for this to be the reputation of this church at some point down the road. How desperate is a world that we live in for a community of people who set the pace in honoring one another like this? I want to know what apologetic for the gospel of God is, a defense for the gospel, an argument for the gospel, an appealing picture of the gospel. It's a people like this. A place where there is a genuineness of love amongst God's people born out of the gospel that displays itself in a love willing to risk the status quo, willing to risk the the current status of that relationship for one another's joy in the gospel and God's glory, that's willing to display the genuineness of affection born out of a delight in God's grace towards us that doesn't matter where you've come from or where you are, what your background is, what your education is. We don't even see those things in that affection that draws us together because we're constantly being reminded by one another of who we are in God by his grace together. And the people that set the pace then at seeking to find ways to point and make much of God's work in one another's lives. What might that look like to a watching world? Friends, that has been God's eternal strategy since the beginning. It's not new. It's not new. People have to keep writing books about church strategies and church missions and church visions because it's already been done. They've got to come up with new stuff to go say. This has always been God's plan. It's not deficient in any way. It's certainly not powerless. Friends, this is God's intention. All of these things begin to go together with the rest of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, and maybe we'll come to that next week. But this is the culture that God intends for the gospel to cultivate in the lives of his people here at Redemption Hill. And it matters. It matters. Because God intends for our lives together to put on display the wisdom and the power of the gospel. And this is something God takes very seriously. We are his. We are his family and the culture of our lives together. Not simply the statement of faith, not simply the catalog of activity, but the culture of our lives together, enjoying the grace of God together, is meant by him to say something about him and his family to a watching world. So to be together and be less than genuine to not be willing to risk the status quo for one another's joy, to be selective and and snobbish about our affection, to be bent on our own honor and our own name and our own value. Friends, this is to contradict who God is and who we are by his grace. The culture of our church is of utmost importance to God. And the question is, Will we live the truth of the gospel of this new family, of the fatherhood of God, and display his wisdom or not? Will our lives and our affections tell the truth about God's grace? 
Will they speak of what he has done for us in sending his son to save us, to give us new life, to cause us to be born again, to be brought into his family as brothers and sisters? What are we saying and what are we going to say about him as our father? It's no small issue. I don't know what you thought about the value of church culture when you came in here this morning, but it's a big deal to God. Will we tell the truth about the gospel? the manifold wisdom of God, the way that God has intended, not the ways that we've crafted, but will we speak of the manifold wisdom of God and the gospel in the way that he has intended through our love for one another? Friends, this is what made the church so attractive in the early years. They didn't have social media. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't even have buildings. They had a culture born out of a confidence and a delight in the gospel. And the world saw it. And God used it to bring others to a saving faith in Christ. Why? Because when they looked in, what they saw was a satisfaction and a delight in Christ. What are we going to say about the manifold wisdom of God to a watching world through the way that we live together? I'll, I'll let Paul kind of bring us to an end this morning. Later on in chapter 15, Paul says, may the combination of God's steady and constant calling and warm personal counsel in Scripture come to characterize us. May he keep us alert for whatever he will do next. May our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in us so that we get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. We're not there yet. But is that what we want? Is that what you want? Friends, if you're wondering about the church, this is what you should look for. Paul goes on to say, when this is happening, there will be a choir not only of voices, but our very lives singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So reach out. Welcome one another to God's glory. Jesus did it. Now go do it to one another. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you that you are, by your grace, working in us according to the power of your spirit, not only a sincere delight in who you are and what you've done, but you're working in us by your spirit, a culture that reflects your wisdom. God, we ask this morning that you would do away in our hearts with anything that seeks to substitute your purposes for your church. God, we want our life to reflect and increase satisfaction you peace that we have been shown by you that we continue to enjoy with the depth of relationship that we have with you through your son may we love may we give of ourselves may we outdo one another with energy and pointing out to each other where you are at work lord we want to be the people that you sent your son to die for 
Lord, put away from our minds and our hearts the cleverness of strategies and wisdoms that seeks to move away from your eternal plan for the church. Lord, but let us hold fast with confidence that what you said is true as we enjoy you more deeply and reflect that same delight to one another, a watching world will know your love for them. Lord, grow in us this culture that puts your manifold wisdom on display. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.